I hinted at this a couple of weeks ago, um, and I said, well, you know, there are various ways to read the Christmas story as stories uh, again every year. One of the ways you can do it is look at the various appearances of the angels. That's really fun and helpful, I think. And uh, another way I said you could do that is to look at the songs. And so I want to look at the songs. Uh, this one today is Mary's song called the Magnificat. Um, next Sunday, I want to look at um, Zechariah's song, which is called the Benedictus. And then on Christmas Eve, I want to look at the song of the heavenly host that we get in Luke chapter 2. And I'm still debating about uh, the 26th. I may do uh, what's called the Nunc Dimittis that uh, Simon uh, um, sings, you might say, in, in uh, the latter part of Luke 2. But we'll see about that when we get there, okay? So... Um, let me introduce this text. We'll read and pray in just a minute. You know, we've got this saying in our culture, you can't make this stuff up. Um, when I was at Notre Dame a hundred years ago, it seems like now, uh, we used to talk about being a Cubs fan would build character because you were always rooting for a loser. And then the Cubs won the World Series. You can't make this up. I mean, the Cubs weren't, were in the World Series. It's just crazy. And, of course, politics, I mean, it would take a hundred years to, to talk about all the you-can't-make-this-stuff-up that happens in politics. And you could say that about Mary's story, too, couldn't you? You can't make this stuff up. The second person of the eternal trinity is going to become a human person by way of a virgin birth to a young, unmarried Jewish girl in a stable. I couldn't make that up. Now, I'm an ex-engineer, recovering engineer, I call myself. I'm not very creative, but I couldn't have made that up. I don't think you could have either. But you can learn from it, and that's my prayer for today. As we approach this text, remember, and I think this is one of the problems with Christmas and Easter and other parts of what we might call the Christian year, we tend to remember the event without sometimes interpreting the event and applying the event. But it's incumbent upon us to do all three. Observe the facts, interpret those facts, apply those facts to our lives. And so that's what I'm hoping to do in my examination of all of these songs, okay? Now, to set the context, the angel Gabriel has been pretty busy, right? Uh, He's announced to um, Mary that she would conceive after he had announced to Elizabeth that she would conceive. And Mary, in a great act of faith, has said, Be it done to me in accordance with your will. And then Mary makes this trip to visit Elizabeth, which is where we take it up in Acts, I mean in Luke 1, verse 39. So let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us, okay? Lord our God, um, help us to see what you want us to see, not just these events that are so meaningful for us historically and existentially, but what do they mean? How should they transform our lives? And help us to be clear about that and help us to want to change. 
and to be more like you, Lord Jesus. And I pray you'd use a wretchedly sinful, crooked stick to show the narrow way of the Lord Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me remind you, we believe that the Bible is the Word of God written, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. We take it up today in Luke 1 at verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, Mary sang, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fade. This is God's word. It won't fade. It will abide forever and forever. Brothers and sisters, the first thing I want you to see from this text is that God usually uses very ordinary people to accomplish His work and will. God usually uses very ordinary people to accomplish His work and His will. Who are the ordinary Well, Mary's ordinary. Twice in this passage, in verse 48 and in 52, she describes herself as being of humble estate. The ordinary are those who are uneducated or poorly educated or who are on the lower end of the economic spectrum or those who are socially not well connected. Paul describes them in 1 Corinthians 1 as the things that are not. I love that phrase. God has not chosen the wise, God has not chosen the mighty, not many disputers of the age, but God chose the things that are not. He chose the nobodies. Most of us qualify, right? We're nobodies. We're not great. We don't stand out very much. He chooses the nobodies to do great things. Mary was one of the nobodies of her day. Abraham, how did Abraham describe himself in Deuteronomy 26? A wandering, he is described as a wandering Aramean. Moses was born of slaves in Egypt. David was the youngest. Amos described himself in chapter 7 as a fig farmer. Peter, James, and John were fishermen. 
Augustine was a man with a shady moral background, just like Rahab. Luther was an obscure monk. Calvin was a lawyer. No offense, E.C., but he was a lawyer, you know. And you could go on and on. You look at the genealogy of Jesus sometime in Matthew 1 or Luke 4. There are a lot of nobodies in that list. Are you open to that? Open to what? That God might want to do great things through you? Through CVP? Through your children? Perhaps God wants, perhaps God wants to do more with you than you think He might. Or more with you than you want done with you. I mean, Mary might have said that. I mean, she might have said to the angel, for crying out loud, I'm not married yet. This will ruin my reputation. Yeah. There is a pervasive thought, I think, among most ordinary Christians that if God wanted to do something great today for the glory of His name or the blessing of His people, He would not begin with me and He would not begin with my congregation. He would start with somebody else in some other place or some other congregation. How do you know that? Why does God choose ordinary people to accomplish His work and will? Well, what's God out for in the things He does? He's out for His own glory. So, is He going to go to the University of Jerusalem and get a bunch of MBAs to be His apostles? Or is he going to get a bunch of nobodies? How's he going to get the most glory out of this? Let's figure it out. It's not rocket science, is it? He's going to get the most glory if he takes nobodies and uses them for the fame and the glory of his name. Most often, I want to be clear, he chooses ordinary people and has them do ordinary things. You and me, the other apostles. Let me, I'll tell you a story. Um, this is a true story. I was sitting in chapel in seminary when I was in seminary, and Leon Morris, the Anglican, uh, Australian Anglican commentator, he, uh, wonderful uh, books Leon Morris has written, great, great career. I don't even know if he's alive today, but a short little Australian guy, and he's preaching in chapel, and he said, now how many of you could name the 12 apostles? And I began to think, I'm thinking, now, we're seminary students. We're going to be pastors, you know what I mean? I couldn't name the 12 apostles. And you think, really, Alan, you couldn't do that? <laughs> well, I couldn't. And most of us couldn't. And he just he let it soak in just long enough, you know, that the Spirit worked on us. And he said, now, why did I say that? He said, because, yeah, there are the Peters and James and Johns. But he said, most of you are not going to be Peters and James and Johns. Most of you are going to be the other guys that you can't think of their name. Oh, thank you, Dr. Morris. Thank you. Are you content with that? Are you willing to be a servant? Uh, Mary called herself a servant. But God often chooses very ordinary people to do extraordinary things for His glory. And sometimes, friend, that's people just like you and me. That was good news for Mary, and it can be good news for us to be open, to be available. Because God is going to choose very unlikely people, I think. That's the reason when I hear some cultural mover and shaker doing something 
great for Jesus, I kind of cringe a little bit, honestly. Because often those people crash and burn. But anyway, God often uses very ordinary people. Mary's one of them. Secondly, we should be humbled by the humility of the Son of God. We should be humbled by the humility of the Son of God. Yes, he was humble. He veiled his glory by means of a human body. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hailed the incarnate deity. He was conceived in and born of a woman of low estate, a nobody. If you were choosing, if you were in eternity past and in the council between the triune God, okay, Jesus agreed, I'll go and redeem them. Now let's decide who he'll be born to. Who would you have chosen? Somebody like Mary? I think most of us would not. He was born under the law. That is, he was required to keep the law perfectly in order to be accepted and approved by his father. He allowed his creatures to beat him, to crown him, to crucify him, to spit upon him. He allowed his angels to minister to him. He humbled himself. And the scriptures tell us that his humbling of himself should be a model for you and me. Let nothing, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He made himself a nobody, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. His life, redeemed, yes, but it's also a model, a pattern, if you will, of how we are to be humble and humble ourselves. But in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption of sons. Mary was humbled by Jesus' humility. She had been told that she would bear the Son of the Most High, the Son of God. And she was humbled by that. And we should be humbled by that too and count others as more important than ourselves and die to self. And we too should say, as she said in verse 38, be it done to me in accordance with your word. Thirdly, the righteous response when God chooses and uses us is to magnify Him and rejoice in Him, not in ourselves. Do you notice the words in verse um, 46 and verse 47? My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. What is it to magnify something? You kids, maybe you've got a magnifying glass at home, right? And you got something there, and you... Look at it through the magnifying glass. And the magnifying glass, this isn't rocket science, but you'd be amazed at how long I went without thinking about that in regard to this text. To magnify is to make big. 
make big. So Mary might have started Mary's ministry, you know. After she birthed Jesus, she might have started something and and gotten a a Twitter feed and and a Facebook page and she might have sold t-shirts and made a lot of herself, but she didn't. My soul magnifies the Lord. My soul makes the Lord big. How do you do that? So if you said to me, okay, I should magnify the Lord, what what would you do? Well, one of the things you could do is write and sing songs to to Him and about Him. You'll notice that uh, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit uh, in verse 41 and uh, verse 46. And Zechariah, if you look back uh, forward, rather, uh, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And Christians are told... Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he goes on to talk about what being filled with the Spirit will look like. That's in Ephesians 5. Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. Be filled with the Spirit. And the first sign of being filled with the Spirit is addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. And here's Mary's song, because she's singing. She's making melody to the Lord and to herself and to Elizabeth. You'll find as you study the history of a revival in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, that when there's a mighty movement of God, there is also an outbreak of hymnody, new hymnody, songs and hymns and spiritual songs. So what did she do? Well, she remembered that she recalled and celebrated God's attributes Verse 47, God my Savior. Verse 49, mighty God. Verse 49, holy God. Verse 50, merciful God. Verse uh, 51 and 2 and 3, the the strong warrior who turns things upside down. Did you notice that? I love that part of it. He scattered the proud. He's brought down the mighty, but he exalted the humble. He filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he sent away empty. God takes the the things of the world, and turns them upside down. If you're a nobody, that thrills your soul, right? There's hope. There's hope, real hope. Hope promised by God. How do you magnify the Lord? You remember His attributes and you celebrate His mighty acts of creation and redemption. Not just incarnation, but He lived a perfect life. That's to be celebrated. He died In our place, that's to be celebrated. He was raised, he ascended, these are to be celebrated. He's coming again, and even you cold Presbyterians will be shouting on that day. (laughs) Right? You'll be shouting. Presbyterians shouting, it must be the next life, right? Yes, but it'll happen. Listen, you were made to magnify something or somebody. That's the way you're made. As a matter of fact, I, I don't know all of you personally, but I know every one of you is magnifying something in your life. Don't know what it is. Uh, if you're in my age bracket, it might be a grandchild. <laughs> it might be a grandchild. Uh, but you're magnifying something or somebody. You're making something large. The only thing, person, that it's right to make really large is God your Savior. Fourthly, 
It is right to remember Mary and call her blessed. Verse 48, blessed or blessed, I don't know. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. Now look, I know there's some serious errors nearby. Prayer to Mary, the immaculate conception of Mary, the perpetual virginity of Mary, the worship of Mary as co-redemptrix. I know there are some serious errors nearby. But the possibility of error should not stop us from calling her blessed. She was blessed. Elizabeth called her blessed in verses 42 and verse 45. We should remember her and be thankful for her. And Protestants are a little short on this, generally. I think the Catholics are a little overboard on this, okay? But don't let the overcorrection fail or, or cause you to fail to be thankful for her and remember her and call her blessed. Fifthly, when our mighty God, look at verse 48 again, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. When our mighty God looks upon us, great things happen. We are apt to read that and read it as if it says, he looked at me. Uh, To look upon is not just to look at like you might go window shopping in a mall before COVID. (laughs) I guess we don't do that much anymore. To, To look upon is like a mother going by a child's room at night and looking in to see if he or she is asleep and see if he or she needs anything. Do I need to go in and pull the cover up? Do I need to get something away? I don't want my child to to be suffocated. To to look upon is a very active, not passive type of thing in the Bible. We sing a song, Jesus cast a look at me. You know that song, maybe? Yeah. That's, That's theologically loaded. Because if, if, if Jesus looks upon us, great, blessed things will happen. In uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1, Hannah, you'll remember the story of Hannah. Many of you will know that story. And she had longed for a child. And in her prayer in verse 11, she says, Lord, look upon me. And he did. And she gave birth to Samuel. In Genesis 29, it says God looked upon Leah, and she had children. She bore Reuben. And here, God looked upon Mary, and she bore Jesus. You find that phrase all over the Bible. Isaiah 64, be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not of iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. Isaiah 66, but this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Psalm 102, the Lord looked down from his holy height, from heaven the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those doomed to die. And it goes on. But when God looks, God blesses, right? Will the Lord look at me? Well, according to Isaiah 66, yes, if we fear him, if we respect him, that describes Mary. 
But I should ask myself, you should ask yourself, does it describe me? God looked upon her because I think she feared the Lord. Sixthly, 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 is that right? I guess that's right. Number six, and last, you say, okay. The Lord keeps his promises. He remembers his covenant with Abraham. Look at 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel. Now see, here she is. You, you, you can miss this. Here she is. She's now expecting via the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth has come to visit. It's just the two of them there. And she starts thinking about the nation of Israel. Don't miss that point. I think it's surprising if you set yourself in the context. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercies. He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. God is remembering his covenant with Abraham, and she knows that, and she celebrates that and sings about that. This didn't all happen out of a vacuum, but it had been promised, and they had been waiting for millennia almost. Zechariah knew that too. If We'll see this next week, but in verses 72 and 73... Um, uh, of this passage to show mercy promised to our fathers to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. They clearly interpreted this as a, as a fulfillment of the covenant promises that God had made hundreds of years before. What was the content of that promise? I'll be a God to you. And in a, I'm going to be really quick in my summary here. God promised them a place, plenty, people, His own presence, and protection. The five P's. The covenant. If you look at the end of the book of Revelation, what do you find? God's presence, many people, protection, plenty. And I've forgotten the other one, but you'll remember it. Five P's. That what did he promise in the Holy Land? A place, people, plenty, protection. What's the other one? I can't remember. What? Presence. His presence in their midst. And here it comes. His presence in their midst. Yes. That's a good thing. That's a good thing when God comes into your midst. Jesus would fulfill and seal this covenant in his sinless life and his death on the cross. Who would have thought this up? Who would have made it up that the Son of God would be born to Mary in a stable? That once born, he would be crucified by his creatures? That crucified, dead, and buried, he would rise from the dead? That risen, he would ascend And he promised to return as he did. Who would have thought it up that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by works of the law? Who would have thought that up? We default to works of the law. We default to building our own righteousness. But Jesus says, I came to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Who would have thought it 
up that no one is too proud or sinful or bad for God to look upon them savingly. Who would have thought it that God chooses the things that are not the nobodies to confound the things that are? Who would have thought that even at this late date, for some of us, the door is still open to anyone who will humble himself or herself and turn to Jesus and trust him? Who would have thought that? God. God. And it's very good news. Let's pray. Lord our God, thank you for this good news that you fulfilled your covenant promises. That you come to the nobodies like Mary and like us. And that you save. Thank you. Help us to revel in it, rejoice in it, believe it, be transformed by it, and be humbled, Lord, as you humbled yourself. And we pray in your name. Amen.